Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Friday, June the 30th, 2023, and I'm a little bit bummed out. I'll tell you why. It has to do with my numeric pattern obsession. So I was all excited that episode 3333 was going to be on a week ending Friday. Because it was four threes and ends on a Friday, and it would be cool, and it was also the 30th of June, so there's another three, and I thought it was going to be great. And then last week, we had an interview I attempted to do, and because of technical issues, we had to cancel it. It was so late in the day, I, I didn't do a new show that day, and now it's all muffed up. And 33, 33 won't happen till next week. I know that's like a first world problem to the extreme. It just bugged me, and I wanted to tell you. But here's what's going to be maybe a little bit cool about it. So the third day of the week being Wednesday. Uh, 3333 will be Wednesday. And that's just my clever way of giving you an announcement. Because the 4th of July falls on a Tuesday, I don't really have plans to work Monday either. And so I am going to take a four-day weekend, something very unusual for me, especially this time of year. And I'm going to enjoy my time off with my wife and some of it with my family. So you won't hear from me again after today until Wednesday of next week. So when nothing comes out on Monday, don't think they came and got me with the black helicopters. Everything's good. Unless you hear from me that they came and got me with the black helicopters. Anyway, what are we going to talk about with the expert counsel today? We've got a good lineup today. Dr. Paul and his friends over at the Liberty, uh, Ron Paul Liberty Report have some highlights for us this week. From Dr. Paul, he's going to talk about how government shouldn't be a loophole for criminals, but apparently it is. And I'd say it always has been. It always has been. It just might be more obvious and in your face now than any time in your adult life anyway. Dan McAdams will talk about uh, RFK Jr., uh, his thoughts on diplomacy with Russia and invoking lessons from the Cuban Missile Crisis. I think that's pretty interesting. Chris Rossini will talk about why the politicians now want the money printer turned back on. And that's going to fit in with our next segment from John Pugliano. Where's the recession we expected? It is time running out for us to have a recession in this cycle, the cyclical nature of an economy like ours. I'll tell you why I think you're looking at a recession and you just don't realize you're looking at a recession. It's just a different kind of recession than we've had in the past. Next up, you'll hear from Nick Ferguson on planting marshy areas with productive plants. Does that sound familiar? Well, it might be, because Friday last week, we had the same exact question from the same exact person. And last week, it was answered by Jeff Lawton. Uh, The person sent the question for either Nick or Jeff, so I sent it to both of them and thought it would be interesting to hear different takes from two different people that work in two different parts of the world on what to do with this area. So we'll hear Nick's version of this question this week. Doc Bones will talk about keeping hydrated during hot weather, and boy, do you need to do that right now. Tim Cook will talk about avoiding the, the, the concept known as, or he's created himself, I guess, Schrodinger's generator. you got a brandy new generator. Just brandy new, perfect, all packaged up and ready to go, delivered to your house, sitting all nice and put away. And seems like maybe the best thing to do would be, since it's for emergencies, just leave it alone. No, you shouldn't do that, because until you open the box, is it really a generator, or is it something else? Tim will explain. 
Jeff Lawton. We do have him back this week again, and he'll be talking about recharging a spring with swales and trees. And I'm going to do something that I know it's going to bend some people's nose the wrong way because some special children will have a hard time that, that I've chosen Russia as one of the examples in this. And Putin's evil. Hey, I think all politicians are evil, so you don't have to, you don't have to go there. But what I want to talk about is patriotism and how patriotism is used as a tool to create war. But it's probably not what you think. It's not just that they raw, raw patriotism up and say, we have to go do this in the name of our fatherland or whatever, right? It's that they will lie to you. They will lie to you about the other side. They will, they will infer through various means that the other side is just, they're just evil. Well, the people in charge are evil. The people that live there, they don't really want to live there in that way and will be greeted as uh, liberators. That, that was something we were told an awful lot about you know, with the Middle East. It didn't quite work out that way, did it? And I think what Americans need to realize is we're not the only patriotic nation. And we, in fact, probably right now at this point in history are not the most patriotic nation. Now, I know my patriots out there are going to get really pissed when I say that. But look around. Look around you. And tell me that America as a whole is an incredibly patriotic nation right now. We've got half the country that literally hates the country they live in. They've rejected the blessings of being born here. And being born here is a blessing. There's no doubt about it. There's, I'm not going to say there's no better place to be in the world right now, but this is one of the best, the absolute best places you could be if you'll do something with the opportunity that affords you. But that doesn't mean that other people don't feel that way about their country. Indians, as in the, con the subcontinent of India, are patriotic. Chinese people are patriotic. Japanese are patriotic. And this idea, well... You know, they all want to be like us. No, they don't. A lot of people do. A lot of people risk everything to come here. But a lot of people really love their nation, as they should. And if we're not cognizant of that, we are subject to extreme manipulation. I was going to tell you something uh, about Russia uh, when I get to my segment today that may be hard for some of you to swallow. But it's the truth, nonetheless. In fact, I find the things that upset people the most are the ones they don't like that are also true. People tend not to get that upset when you tell them something they don't like and they know patently that it's false because they just point out how you're wrong and show you and say, look, see, you're wrong, you know. That's that's how it works. But, you know, think of, if this bugs you, if you have a hard time when I get to my segment today, think about when you see, like, a left-wing loon on TV and they're arguing with somebody, and that somebody that they're arguing with points out very astute and accurate facts that refute what they're saying. And they explode, and they get mad, and they start shrieking. Don't be them. Don't mock the person and then turn around and behave the same way just because the issue at hand changed. So that's what we'll be talking about. Before we get to that, let me go ahead and remind you guys that uh, the way we really are able to do this show five days a week for you is through the Member Support Brigade memberships. That's what actually pays the bills for everything. All the other stuff we do is nice. It's like gas money. It is the MSB that really makes us able to do this for you on an ongoing basis. It's what supported the show for 15 years. Without members, I don't have a business. I have a hobby. And so if you love this show, 
if you like what I do, if you get value from it, and you're not a member yet, or your membership expired, consider rejoining or joining for the first time the MSB, or Member Support Brigade. The beauty of it is if you'll actually use the discounts, it will pay you back. I heard from a guy the other day, he said, I haven't even listened to you in two years. I've just different place in my life right now. But I keep my membership active because I use it. I use it, and I make my money back on the membership, plus I make money. So he was he was actually getting in touch with me because his membership expired and it didn't renew the way it was supposed to. So I had to help him, but he, he told me that. I'm like, well, hopefully you'll tune in again, but let me help you get your membership back. That's how valuable it is. I've often said, even if you hate me, you probably should use it because it, it's such a good product because of the way we built it. So I don't talk about it as much as I did when we first rolled it out. I just kind of mentioned it here and there. I thought I would throw in today, it really is the way that we're able to do this. 50 bucks a year is 18 cents an episode. So if you're not a member yet, please consider becoming one, and that's, that'll, that'll wrap that up. Let's go ahead and hear today from Dr. Ron Paul, Dan McAdams, and Chris Rossini in that same order. Because, uh, you know, the moral high ground is that make people think that you're taking care of the poor. Oh, yeah, if you're against the poor, you don't have a heart, that's not Christian. And they'll go on and on about the evils of liberty. And yet, the truth is that people do better with liberty than any other system if you're concerned about the poor and the downtrodden because they're treated so much better and the incentives of the, the whole system changes. But there is one law that uh, has been uh, used over the centuries, uh, for 150 years, Bastia, in the middle of the 19th century, had had a good rule. And, and he wrote it up in a little booklet called the Bas Bastiat's Law. And he talks about the principle of law. And it's not complex. And I think if people would say, well, that sounds like a good idea. Don't they do it that way? No, they don't do it the way he suggests it. He, he suggested this really wild idea that government shouldn't be able to do any harm to their neighbors that you and I can't do to our neighbors. We can't steal, rob, and kill and injure our neighbor. If we don't have a right to walk into their house, we don't have a right to tell who's coming into your house or your country against your wishes and you have to pay for it all. No, the, the, uh, the Bastia law is governments can't do it. But the, the sneaky approach is that only government can provide a safety net. And uh, that uh, is not true. The more effort they do by stealing from one and taking care of another, the worse the system goes. That's why foreign aid has always failed, because it's always uh, usurped by the people who are the authoritarians, who are the strongest in that country. It never helps, it helps the poor people. It all goes to the wrong places, but it's all done because people are sip sympathetic that there are poor people. The evidence is overwhelming that the freer our country is, the more prosperous it is, and the less poor suffering people you have. But people think there's a free lunch out there, and the answer is there is no free lunch. There might be, it might look like that when people get away with stealing and saying it's a noble thing for government to come and steal, but until people understand the moral principle that government cannot do what you or I uh, can't do with with our neighbors um, he said let's replace the vicious cycle of escalation with a virtuous cycle of peace building senators Lindsey Graham and Richard Blumenthal just issued a resolution threatening Russia with dire consequences in response to its stationing of nuclear weapons in Belarus I agree that Russia should remove those weapons and as a first step 
the U.S. can start removing its nukes from Germany, Italy, Belgium, Turkey, and the Netherlands, along with its new missile bases in Romania and Poland. That's his solution. Well, I remember it well, the uh, days going on on the Cuban crisis uh, uh, on uh, missiles. The uh, fortunate thing was that uh, they came up with a solution. At the time, you weren't allowed to know the solution because anybody who would have said <clears throat> we should back off out of fear from Turkey and not cut our missiles there, we should move them closer to Russia, that's argument still going on today, yeah. like we're, we're in Ukraine. So they kept that secret, but then they said, <clears throat> oh, President is going to take the missiles out and everything's yeah. calmed down. But it didn't take too long for everybody to know that uh, there, there was a deal worked out, and it was uh, based on common sense and two people that still lived in the real world they said okay you know you have they, because Brezhnev makes the point you're in Turkey you're in all these other places yeah. and Kennedy had the brains to say huh you're right about that uh, I'll bet we could do without those things. So he agrees to do it, and all of a sudden, uh, the missile crisis was essentially over. Yeah, it was a compromise. We didn't stare down the Soviets, and they backed and blinked. No, it was a compromise, and that's why I think what RFK says here is so important. Bring back compromise. Big spenders inside and, as Dr. Paul points out, outside of our government, they want to bring back zero rates or near zero rates. They want the Fed to pivot. The big spenders in Congress uh, are not happy with the Fed. They're, they're threatening the Fed. They may even threaten to revoke their charter because, uh, you know, they were used to zero percent rates. And, you know, honestly, if there's zero percent rates, you don't really need a Fed. It's as if the Fed is not there. So it's Congress literally printing money for whatever they want. And look what they've done in the last 10 to 15 years. Look what they've done to our culture. That was done with funny money, you know, and that's what zero rates gets, gets you. And Dr. Paul mentioned climate. They have all these people afraid of the weather, and that government with their so-called investments, non-economic investments and all these things, as if they're going to plan the world, you know, as if it's like a video game that they could just maneuver pieces. You know, if this was all done with zero rates. So that's what they want. They want that back. We need sound money and free markets because both of those provide the truth. Supply and demand, sound money, no counterfeiting. These, they will provide economic truth. Now, they will not solve all of our problems, not even close, because this would not change human nature. People will lie, people will cheat, people will steal, no matter what, whether you have sound money or not. Okay, it's just under our fiat system, it encourages it, it institutionalizes it, it makes it legal to lie, cheat, and steal. But man will have free will, we, we will not change human nature. You know, the people that tried to change human nature were the Soviets. They were convinced that they were going to create a new Soviet man. And you can go and read about this Superman that they were going to create. They created hundreds of millions dead. They changed nothing, they just starved everyone and worse. Uh, so human nature will not be changed even with sound money, even with, uh, you know, a constitutional government, even with free markets. People are people with free will, and there will be people that will choose to do the wrong things, period. But at least with sound money, the entire system is not a lie. 
I pretty much agree with everything there. I'm not going to go into anything about the Russia thing because of my segment at the end. It will be talking a little bit about it anyway. I will clarify right now, though, that when I get to that segment, it's not really about Russia. It's about any country. It's about any country that your country decides has to be your adversary. You're not a good enough American. You're not patriotic enough. And that's just a game that's been played over and over. You see the patterns over and over. I also did want to give you a little clue in about yesterday, too. So yesterday, if you watched the live stream, you you know that there was some dog interference yesterday. I had to walk off the live stream for about a minute and throw Lucy out. But when I, I actually listened to my show from yesterday myself, and I noticed something, and if you only heard the audio, you wouldn't know it wasn't me, I guess. There was a, a, an obnoxious sound in the background a couple times yesterday. That sound was Charlie Daniels, right? That's my dog, my pit mix. Uh, he's doing this thing now where sometimes he drinks a ton of water, and then he sounds like he's yakking, but he doesn't actually yak. It's... it's if, that, if you heard that yesterday, you're like, what the hell is Jack doing? That's It's the dog. It wasn't me, I promise. You go watch the video, you'll see that. All right, with that, let's go ahead and let's you know kind of keep it on this thing with the monetary policy. Where's the recession? Is there going to be a recession? They're trying to make one. The Fed's job is to cause recessions. That's one of their jobs, to cause. I'm not kidding. But it doesn't look like a recession. And so let's hear John's take on it. But then... I'm going to give you my take on it. Maybe you're looking at a recession and you just don't realize it. Hello, TSP. It's the end of June, and so it's time for a mid-year economic update. The big question is, where's the recession? With the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, I thought we would have seen a recession by April of this year. I still think it's highly probable that the economy does go into a recession this year, but I'll put a caveat on that and say that time is running out. Now, in this segment, I don't have enough time to go into all the details of why I think the recession has been postponed so far. But in terms of timing, I do think the entire recession is at the discretion of the Federal Reserve. And I do believe they want to create a recession to cool off the economy, to stop the wage inflationary spiral from getting out of control like it did back in the 70s. They have very limited options to do that, and the surest way is to increase unemployment by creating a recession. That is, I think, on their agenda. And as far as timing, the reason I'm saying that if a recession doesn't occur pretty rapidly here, that it could get postponed for more than a year is really just coming back to politics. Politics is not supposed to play a role in the Federal Reserve's decisions, but I think you'd be naive to believe that. I put up a post over at my blog site. I'll give Jack the link to that. And I put up a chart there where I showed that over the last 72 years, there's been 11 recessions. And of those 11 recessions, four of them occurred during a presidential election year. And 100% of those times, the party that controlled the White House lost the election. As a side note, three of those times, there was a Republican administration. And the only time it was a Democratic administration was Jimmy Carter. So when my cynical mind identifies patterns like that, I ask myself, is the Federal Reserve likely to want to keep the Democrats in the White House and at least controlling the Senate? Or would they like to see the election turn over and have the Republicans win? Well, let's step back and look at a couple facts. The Biden team is joined at the hip with the Federal Reserve. The current Secretary of State is Janet Yellen 
She was the immediate former chair of the Federal Reserve. And Biden, just over the last month or so, has placed Lyle Brainerd as his director of the National Economic Council, which heads up his entire economic agenda. Now, Ms. Brainerd, immediately before taking that position for the Biden team, was the co-chair of the Federal Reserve, and she has been the heir apparent to become the chair once Jay Powell's term is over in 2026. So while I do believe the Federal Reserve wants to further tighten monetary policy to get a handle on inflation, and I think the end result of that will be a recession, I don't think they want a recession during an election year. So if they're going to create a recession, that means it has to happen fairly quickly so that they can come back early enough in 2024 to juice and re-stimulate the economy in plenty of time to placate the low information voters before the November 2024 election. And if they can't do that, then I think it would be highly likely that they drag their feet enough and keep monetary policy loose enough to delay a recession until after December of 2024. Well, hey, those are just my thoughts. This is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealthsteading Podcast. So I have less faith in the Federal Reserve's power than John does. I think there's a lot of things they can do to make things worse than they already are, and there's a few things they can do to mitigate bad things. But they can't really change the economy. You, you, you're in a situation right now where there is so much money. that you, So when you hear something like another half a trillion dollars or something being spent, it, it, it's, not, it's not what it used to be. Think about it like when I was a kid, if the Dow Jones went up 50 to 100 points in a day or down 50 to 100 points, it was a huge news event. And now 50 points is a rounding error because it's so much larger. It's kind of like that in another way. And I think what you're actually looking at right now is just a very weird recession that we're in. It doesn't look like a recession because people have jobs, but people can't afford things. So does it really matter if you, if you have a job and can't afford things or you don't have a job and can't afford things? Or if you had a job that was like, you know, have a two-income household, and now you're down to a single income because one person lost their job, so you're getting by but barely. Well, it doesn't really matter why you can't afford to pay for everything. And sooner or later, when you're in this situation like we are now, things break. There's an awful lot of housing that was purchased for way too much money a few years ago when everybody got great big giant stimmy checks, and a whole big exodus of out, of out of terrible places to a little bit better places happened. And people had all this found money, and they said, oh, I'm going to take this money and roll it into a down payment. Because some people ended up making a you know, two-income two uh, household, and neither side ever lost their job, and they had a couple kids, and they ended up with over $10,000 come into their household. And a lot of people that saw it come, and they're like, this is our, our shot. And they wanted to get the hell out of where they were anyway. And it takes just a little stub of the toe when you've overextended on a mortgage. And then all of a sudden you can't pay the bills. There will be a reckoning here. I, the, the, the Fed may be able to push that can down the road. Now, again, they're the ones that started this whole thing in the first place trying to create a recession that they seem to have failed to create. They, look how much interest rates went up. 
Everything right now is screaming we should be in a recession. We are in a recession, technically, based on GDP. And if you use the real GDP, we're really in a recession. I just think we're looking at something that nobody that's alive has ever seen before. And I don't know exactly what to do about it. But I do know this. This is not the time to squander surplus. This is the time to build as much surplus as you can. Because whether it's before or after the election doesn't really matter. You know, when you're 20, I know that like five years sounds like a long time in a cycle. The older you get, you realize five years isn't that long. Not really. And that sooner, you know, so something being a couple years out, one year out or two years out, doesn't really change the calculus that much on the impact that it's going to have. The only thing that actually changes the calculus on the impact is how prepared you are to deal with it when it finally does come. But I think you're, you're looking at a very strange form of recession right now. Because if you go out and ask people if the economy is good, you do not get yeses from very many people. You really don't. Because people are busy, we think good economy. Because people are employed, we think good economy. Good economy means that a person that is a middle-income wage earner can feel like they're doing really well without going into ass loads of debt. We don't have that. We don't have that. It's an illusion. That's my opinion. Moving on, let's hear Nick Ferguson's answer to the question Jeff answered last week about productive plantings in a marsh area. Hey, hey, Nick here with HomegrownLiberty.com answering a question for Justin on swampy area productive plants. Hey, Jack, question for Jeff Lawton or Nick Ferguson. What productive plants can be planted in a naturally wet swampy area? Justin here from Massachusetts in Zone 6A. I'm on a half-acre property of which about one-third of the property is wet and mostly seasonally swampy in moderately wooded environment, this one-third of the property in summer-fall is mostly soggy soil with pockets of year-round swamp, but in late winter through spring, it's mostly very swampy. I've sent in questions in the past trying to figure out how to change this environment, but I'm starting to realize it might make more sense to work with it. I plan to thin the overgrowth in small trees, creating raised pathways for access, and I want to plant out productive, preferably perennial plants in this area. What are some examples of plants, trees, etc. that will do well? Is a zone 6A swampy soggy area. Additionally, a lot of skunk cabbage grows in the area, which I don't know of any useful purpose for. Will any productive plants help to snuff out and take the place of skunk cabbage, perhaps a spreading variety of comfrey? Any other ideas for making swampy wet areas more productive would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, Justin. Um, well, I bet you long-time listeners already know what I'm going to say. Well, you're wrong. Well, you're right, but you're also wrong. If... You have some full sun, or at least afternoon sun. My go-to would actually be elderberry. It's a very productive perennial that can make wonderful elderflower liqueur and teas, or the berries can be allowed to ripen, and you can make some of the best dang jelly and syrup known to man, in my opinion, with the berries. There's a lot of perennial plants that'll do well in boggy areas, but you need some sun. And the problem is most aren't very productive or helpful. So for my purposes, for homesteading type uses, or for making some money, and for most people, I'd say you should probably make sure you get some good sun on the ground. And I would coppice hybrid willow and hybrid poplar. There's a ton you can use both for, including mulch, biochar, and artist charcoal, I mean, there's a ton of uses. You can use them as fuel wood, and heck, honestly, 
there's a lot of ornamental willows that nurseries sell out of every year. You can literally grow money on trees by growing the ornamental varieties and coppicing the trees yearly to harvest the regrowth. It's dead simple. It's stupid easy. Just keep your varieties labeled so that you know what they are, and you just cut them back every winter and sell the sticks. It's really easy. I've had a question uh, that's similar from a listener a while back. Might have been you, but I'm not sure. Either way... I had a lot of suggestions on what to do with the swampy area to increase its productivity, but it boils down to this. You need to moderate or concentrate the water and build diversity somehow, and that's going to give you more productivity and useful square footage. So I'd focus on getting some sunlight in there, and I would find something that can turn that square footage into a money-making opportunity, like some ornamental willows or a raw material use Like the hybrid willow, hybrid poplar, making biochar, you can make compost, you can make Johnson Sioux biochar compost by mixing the Johnson Sioux compost and biochar together and you can sell that. Man, up there, I bet you have a whole bunch of yuppies that want to pay good money for stuff like that. I hope that helps out. Wish I could get deeper into the topic, but seeing as how I'm trying to knock a bunch of questions out, Leading up to my consulting tour, I'm super short on time, and speaking of which, just in case it's not too late, I don't know when this episode is going to publish, I want to give another quick heads up that I have two days open for consulting in Michigan. I'm going to be at Mark Baker's Green Acres, teaching a a class up there, and doing some consulting on this tour. His farm's in Marion, Michigan. That's Saturday the 8th and Sunday the 9th. So if you're anywhere up there around Baker's Green Acres, heading, especially heading southeast, let me know and I can probably work you into the consulting tour. And before I sign off, I just wanted to give you guys an update on the plant propagation course. I've been getting emails and messages and uh, lots of questions on it. Things are still progressing, but... Man, I'm super, super busy. I feel like a one-legged man in a butt-kicking contest. I don't have enough time in the day to get everything done, but I'm on another consulting tour, and I won't be able to get everything uploaded and sorted out until I get back home. There's just only so much time in the day, and alas, I have not enough of it. I'll have updates posted to homegrownliberty.com as soon as I have news, and of course, I'll let everyone know through my expert counsel answer segments. I... Appreciate all the great questions. Keep them coming. I'm Nick Ferguson with HomegrownLiberty.com. Do good things. Well, he was speaking of the 8th and 9th of July. So if you live up in that area, you do have the opportunity uh, to reach out to Nick and uh, engage him in consulting services, which every person I know that's ever done it seems pretty happy about the results. Anyway, um, I, I think those are really some great answers. I gave my additional thoughts on it last week, and I actually did mention some of the same things that Nick did there. Uh, I think that if you take the two answers, the person who asked this question, and, and combine them, and then my input from last week with Jeff's, I think you get a pretty dramatic picture of all the different things that you could do with this. And uh, then you got to pick the one that works best for you for your goals. But uh, the beauty of planting something like willow in a marshy area is you, once you get it going, you will not be able to stop it. It will be very self-maintaining at that point. All right. 
Next up, let's talk about dehydration. This is a real risk. Uh, I've had one experience in my life where I had very serious heat injury. It is not fun. It is life-threatening. On an Honest to God, it is a life-threatening thing. And it all starts with simple dehydration and progresses from there. If we don't get dehydrated, this doesn't happen. With that in mind, let's hear what Doc Moans has to say about it. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Jerry, who asks, what should I do to rehydrate while working outside in hot and humid weather? Uh, I live in Michigan's zone 5B. Although it's north, in summer months it gets into the upper 90s or hotter and the humidity gets unbearable. I typically drink a lot of powdered Gatorade or some other, quote, sports drink, unquote, that puts back in what you sweat out. I'm guessing this isn't the best stuff to consume with its high sugar content, and who knows what else is in there. I'm open to suggestions as to making my own beverage with less sugar and other artificial fake ingredients I can't pronounce, but still put back in whatever I need to put back in. Jerry. Jerry, it's going to be a long, hot summer, that's for sure, and the risk of dehydration from being in the sun is a real possibility. The most important substance a person needs to survive after air is water. Up to 60% of the human body is comprised of it. Indeed, you'd be lucky to survive more than three days without some good old H2O in your system. In the coming dog days of summer, maintaining water status, otherwise known as hydration, is going to be imperative if you're going to stay healthy. Water is required for many bodily functions like maintaining circulation, aiding digestion, supplying nutrients, removing waste, cushioning joints, regulating body temperature, so much stuff. So how much fluid is enough? Requirements for water depend on the climate you're in, as well as the amount of exertion performed, the general state of health, all sorts of stuff like that. Medical problems like running a fever, diarrhea, or vomiting increase the amounts of fluids needed to replace lost water content. If you don't get enough in your system, you become dehydrated. The general rule is that women should drink 2.7 liters of water each day and men should drink about 3.7 liters. Another measure suggests dividing your weight in pounds by half and drinking that number of fluid ounces. It may seem like a lot, but that's what you need to replace daily water loss. Another group with recommendations is the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They recommend you drink 8 ounces of water either at bedtime or when you wake up. Then drink at least a glassful with every meal. And if you know there's work to be done outside in the heat, drink 16 ounces well before you start. You should know that the water content of solid foods is included when you measure your daily intake. Most people ingest about 20% of their daily fluids in the form of solid food. Some of your best options include watermelons, strawberries, grapefruits, spinach, cucumbers, celery, tomatoes, bell peppers, broccoli, and cauliflower. These all contain at least 90% water. I get asked a lot about dehydrated fruit and vegetable supplements like Balance of Nature. Whether they provide nutrients or not, they do decrease your daily fluid intake from whole fruits and vegetables and possibly can contribute to dehydration. If you take this stuff instead of whole fruits and vegetables, figure out what you're going to do to replace the fluids you're giving up. Failure to keep up with your fluid status leads to dehydration. Now, how do you know how dehydrated you are? A good measure is the color of your urine. Pale urine, sort of lemonade colored or straw colored, indicates a pretty decent hydration level. Darker yellow urine means you're behind. Amber colored urine means you're very behind and you got to drink some fluids. 
Now, I should mention that some drugs and medical issues may affect urine color, regardless of hydration status. Frequency of urination and the amount of total output should also be monitored. If you're well hydrated, you should feel an urge to go probably about every two to three hours. Other signs and symptoms of dehydration include feeling lightheaded, thirsty, having a dry mouth, and fatigue. Headaches and rapid heartbeats are also seen in some cases. There's a thing called skin elasticity that's also known as turgor, and that decreases when you're dehydrated. Turgor status is determined by pulling up the skin of your forearm. In a well-hydrated person, it snaps right back when released. In severe dehydration, it may stay tented up or return to normal very slowly. Now, staying hydrated. Many of us walk around all the time at some level of dehydration. So in the upcoming hot weather, how are you going to stay hydrated if you're working or exercising in the sun? The American Council on Exercise suggests this regimen. Drink 20 ounces 2 to 3 hours before any serious exertion, then another 8 hours 20 or minutes or so before starting, and then during your workout, drink 8 ounces every 20 minutes or so. Finally, you will want to add another 8 ounces no more than 30 minutes after you're done. So which fluids should you be drinking? Some people think any kind of fluid is fine when it comes to rehydration. After all, there's a lot of water and beer, isn't there? Well, it turns out that some liquids can actually dehydrate you. Excessive amounts of coffee, regular soda, beer, wine, hard liquor, they all can dehydrate you. Now, drinks loaded with sugar like lemonade, sweet tea, energy drinks, smoothies, things like that, may also remove water from the body, even if they are supposedly electrolyte drinks like the Gatorade that you were talking about, Jerry. You can counteract some of these effects by drinking a rehydrating glass of water between every dehydrating beverage. Water is too boring for you? Well, you can jazz it up by adding limes, lemons, oranges, berries, even cucumbers to improve the taste. Coconut water is another option. It's rich in sodium, magnesium, calcium, potassium, all sorts of stuff. Now, how about fruit juice? A lot of juices add sugar to increase the sweetness. You want to avoid these. Make sure you look at the label for the indication of added sugars to the drink. Construction workers and athletes that spend the day out in the sun need more help with hydration than just water. Commercial items that help include products like Pedialyte, Gatorade, and other electrolyte-rich drinks. If you're just out for a short period of time, well, water is probably fine. If you drink electrolyte-rich drinks like Gatorade or Pedialyte, you should avoid ingesting juices or salty foods that might unbalance your blood chemistry at the same time. In hot weather settings where people are at risk, already mildly dehydrated, or beginning to feel ill, the solution is pretty simple. Get out of the heat and drink liquids. Keep your body temperature as close to normal as possible. That can be life-saving in hot weather. A high body temperature can lead to heat exhaustion or even heat stroke. Even better is having a plan to prevent heat issues. You want to consider wearing light-textured, loose-fitting clothing and light colors. You want to wear hats for shade purposes, maybe sunscreen, sunblock. If you get a sunburn, then you certainly are going to be hotter and that's going to increase your chances of dehydration. You want to schedule strenuous activities during the cooler times of the day. Maybe you want to mist yourself with a spray bottle, have one of those around. And you certainly want to increase your intake of cool liquids if you're sweating. It might be a cruel, cruel summer this year. So knowing how to prevent dehydration and heat-related problems like heat stroke or heat exhaustion can save a life. For more in-depth information on how to identify and treat these cases, you should check out my articles on the subject at doomandbloom.net, just one of 1,500 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. 
Hey, learn more about off-grid medical topics in the award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. And get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. I'll give you my uh, very short version of how to stay hydrated. Drink lots of water. Eat salt. That's it. And a good salt, like uh, like Redmond's or a good mineral salt. It's all you really need to do. And uh, if you look at Gatorade, the original formation of Gatorade, formulation of Gatorade, which was developed at the University of Florida for the Florida Gators, hence Gatorade, uh, it was sugary sweet. Right? And that's not necessarily good, but it made people drink it. That was the whole point. And, you know, take a, about electrolytes, they're different versions of salts. Uh, when I was in the Army in Honduras, it was probably the most miserable heat that I ever experienced. Uh, it was just every day oppressive heat. I mean, we literally used to cook our MREs just by throwing the, the uh, entree packet uh, up on the roof of the tent, and by lunch it was literally boiling inside there. Like when you, it was vibrating. You had to be careful when you opened it up that it didn't splatter on you and burn you. That's how hot it was. And uh, we took salt tablets as, as part of our our pre- preparation, and we were you know encouraged often to drink constantly. And you'd walk around in that camp, and I mean this is you know we wore the summer uh, version of the BDU trousers, so you were wearing trousers, not shorts, um, but the BDU jacket, we would take that off, and we would just wear the brown T-shirts, and that was kind of uniform of the day. Soft cap, that was just a boonie cap when we were there, and uh, brown T-shirts and uh, summer issue uh, boots and, uh, and and pants. And you would literally see people, you'd look at their back, and you would see salt encrusted on their shirt from sweating through the shirt and sweating out salt. So to me, that's just always been, and what I've what I've noticed is, I've never seen anybody drink adequately, uh, use salt supplementation, and get dehydrated. I just haven't. I'm not saying it's never happened. I'm just saying I haven't. During when you're working out in heat, like we're dealing with this time of year, I think it makes a lot of sense. Wear a Camelback, and drink a little bit constantly. You won't realize how much water you're drinking, and that means how much more water you're drinking when you do it. I have an old school one, and it's got a three liter bladder in it, right? So it's a a giant bottle of soda and a half on your back. And I've been surprised sometimes when I was working in the heat that all of a sudden it's empty. I mean, you consume three liters of water, and go fill it back up, and don't worry, you're going to... I mean, there's this whole thing about you can drink too much, and you, you really can... But when you're in that situation, you're not going to. You're not going to. Your body won't let you. I mean, you have to. It, it's been done, but it's, it's always people that do it like they go psycho with how much you're drinking. You're drinking overtime and perspiring. You're not going to overdrink. Anyway, let's uh, hear from Tim, Toolman Cook, on Schrodinger's Generator. Hey, guys. Toolman Tim here coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back with another expert counsel question for you, so let's dive right in. This week's question comes from Tori, and she says, Hey Tim, I have a generator, and it's new in the box. Should I leave it new in the box? It's been new in the box for a while. What should I do? If anybody's listened to me for a while, I bet you'll know what the answer's going to be, but don't worry. (laughs) I always say a generator in a box is like Schrodinger's cat. 
Uh, you don't know if there's actually a cat in the box or a working generator in the box until you take it out and give it a shot. So here's the thing. If you only have one generator, the best thing you can do is haul that thing out of the box and learn how to use it. Because you do not want to be opening up a generator in the middle of a snowstorm and realize that the dude who connected the wires inside to the ignition was having a bad day, had a fight with his wife, or you know, was thinking about his vacation or whatever and didn't connect something. And then all of a sudden you're trying to figure out what the hell is wrong with that when the weather is really bad and you need the power turned on. So haul it out. But that's just the first step. Now, if you have two of them and you want to keep one brand new in a box, I don't have a problem with that. But you got to know your tools. If, if you don't know what you have and you don't know how to use it, a whole bunch of problems. So that kind of leads me into how do I make sure it's always going to start? Because here's the thing. If you're going to haul a generator out of a box and then you're going to start it and it runs on gas, you then need to have somewhere to store it. So make sure if you if it is a gas generator, you have somewhere safe you can store it so that you don't have gas fumes in your home or apartment or that sort of thing. Make sure you put fuel stabilizer in it. Um, I really love seafoam for generators every couple of months because it kind of burns the gunk out of the carburetor. I also love PRI-G for long-term fuel stabilizer stabilization because it's really the only one that'll bring old fuel back to life. That's your first step. Second step is running the thing. Make sure you run it every two to three months. Everybody, I get asked all the time on the podcast and on YouTube, what's the single thing you can do to make sure your generator runs the best? And it is to run it consistently. I didn't ruin it, but couldn't get a brand new generator to start that I bought, ran once, and then let it sit forever. Wouldn't start for me no matter what. So, Every two to three months, add it to your repairedness or maintenance schedule, haul it out of the garage, put a little bit of fuel in it, or leave some fuel in it, and then start it up. If you have multiple fuel sources for it, run it on both. That's the first step, because then you learn how to make sure, how to at least start your generator. You memorize, you get muscle memory for that process. That's the first step. Then you want to put a load on it. Check all the outlets on your generator. Make sure everything is working, because again... You don't want to find a problem when your significant other wants coffee and it's a blizzard outdoors. So run it, put a load on it, test all of the outlets. Give it an inspection. Make sure nothing's loose, nothing's vibrating on it, everything sounds right, all the lights and the gauges work. If you want to, check the GFI plug on it, all of that. Also, keep some accessories or parts on hand. Air filter and spark plugs for sure. That is the bare minimum because, uh, you know, air filter, if it's been sitting in the garage for three or four months, although it shouldn't be, there's always a mouse or a rat that might want to get in there and make a nest. So have an extra air filter. Some of them are cleanable. The foam ones, you can totally, you know, put them in the sink with some Dawn dish soap, hot water, scrub them, and then let them dry out. The paper ones, just tap them really hard on your workbench and you should be good to go. If you want to blow them out, look on the pleated section and look for the direction of airflow and blow back through so that you're not clogging up the air filter even more. Spark plugs are the best insurance you can have. You know, less than five bucks a piece for a spark plug. Have two or three of them on hand, especially if you're running your generator a lot. Save yourself a ton of work. One final thing, if there's one upgrade to make to a generator like this, if you're hauling it out of the box for the first time and you're wondering, is there anything I need? If your generator doesn't come with a built-in trickle charger, get it. 
Because the thing is, if you're only running it for, say, 10 minutes every two or three months, you're going to wear that battery down. It's not going to have time to charge up using its internal circuitry like it should. So the last thing you always want to make sure is to have the battery fully topped up so that when you go to push that button or turn that key, it's going to run. Because again, those big old motors don't like to start with the pull start. So make sure you have a fresh battery. How do you do that? Pick up just a cheap, inexpensive trickle charger that you can permanently install on your battery. If you can use a screwdriver or a wrench, you can install it. If you need help, reach out to me. I will help you with it. Amazon or Harbor Freight, less than 20 bucks. What you do is you just plug, you, you attach two wires with a, a quick disconnect onto your battery, and then you connect that disconnect, and it's just a little AC adapter that plugs into the wall. It's a smart charger, so it just tops up the battery at any point, and it makes sure you always have a fresh charge. So I hope that helps. Don't be like Schrodinger and don't know if there's actually a working generator in your box or not. Open it up, play with it, learn how it works, stock the parts, keep the battery topped up, fresh gas, and you'll always be ready for a power outage. So I hope that helps. If you guys want to know more about what I do, go by toolmantim.co, go over to the YouTube channel, Toolman Tim's Workshop, or add Workshop Radio to your podcast, where four times weekly, we do the talk radio of the preparedness field, the soundtrack of getting shit done. Uh, give us a listen, give us a like, give us a follow, and come by and join the Telegram group, because we are always growing and building an incredible community over there with a lot of incredible people who love to encourage and inspire me all the time. So with that, guys, as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Good stuff from Tim. And if you go to today's episode and you look right next to the bullet point for Tim's segment, you'll see a link to the uh, battery uh, trickle charger uh, minder uh, that he mentioned. I did add that to the show notes for you today. Next up, let's hear about how to recharge a spring from Jeff Lawton. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And... Um, I have a question here about recharging the spring that's um, reduced over time and has not been maintained. Um, all springs can be recharged with swales uphill. Swales are recharge spring mechanisms. They're rehydration systems. So if you swale uphill from a spring that's depleted, um, not only do, does the swale reforest itself or you can reforest it yourself, it doesn't matter what kind of trees you put on the swale bank, um, they'll help the swale function or you just put in a swale and it will naturally reforest because it's um, hydrating the soil. The charge of water going past the swale every year increases for about seven years. It exponentially increases in the first three years and then uh, it still increases a certain amount, tailing off at about the seventh year where you get a continuous recharge at about the same rate. So if you put in a set of swells upslope from a depleted spring, over time that spring will start to recharge and be a continuous running system. So it's just a matter of choosing your points where, the, um, where you can get upslope any distance really, because it's all the upslope area that is helping to 
um, or can be put into a, a, a recharge earthworks, rehydration earthworks, which will charge the aquifers in the system. Your spring is obviously linked to uh, an impervious layer where the aquifer is leaking at that point and it's lost its recharge, um, possibly for, from, from human activity, um, but probably uh, from deforestation. There you go. The only thing I want to add to that, I just want to reiterate uh, Jeff's call for trees in a system like this, whether they're allowed to naturally propagate or whether you intentionally plant them. It's, it's an incredibly important part of the hydrology of this process. It's actually more important than the swales. The swales are how we kickstart the system and move faster. It's a way that we stack in time. That's what most of permaculture things are when you look at food forests, earthworks, etc. We're stacking in time. We're accelerating a natural process by understanding it and giving it boosts where we see fit and limitations where we see fit. That, that's what the swale is, uh, especially with the intent of doing something like this. How can I say that the, the tree is more important for a, for a, 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 a spring than the swale itself? Because we think of trees as what they are, hydraulic pumps. They use water. Wouldn't planting trees create less water? Because a tree needs water to grow and live. And trees are really big and they use a lot of water. There is a philosophy out there that if you, if you want more water, get rid of the trees. This is an asinine philosophy. There, it could not be more incorrect. Trees actually create rainfall. If you want more rainfall, plant as many trees as you can, everywhere you can. Anywhere that's open, that'll support trees, that is currently not needed for something else and vacant, we should be planting trees. As many as we can. I know that sounds nuts, but it's true. Forests create trees. And one of the really interesting things, whenever this subject comes up, that I always think back about, is there was a journal that was written by a man who was in Montana. And they were cutting trees to use as timbers for the mines. And in his journal, he talked about as they cut the trees, watching streams, which were spring-fed, dry up and stop running to the river. So they were literally watching the destruction that they were, they were implementing on the mountains right in front of them, and they kept cutting the trees. So trees, I, I can't get into it. it would be a, I could probably do a show just on how trees allow for things like springs to happen and how trees infiltrate water and how trees are a net gain for the environment you know but that's not for today today we're going to talk about something else and it's going to be a little bit touchy for some people and i actually thought about not using russia as the example in this because it's so polarizing right now but i thought you know what my audience is made up of big boys and big girls that can hear big boy and big girl things and they can be open-minded and they can actually you know listen and maybe learn something that they didn't know so what kicked this off for me with Russia is there's a song out right now, and it's called I Am Russian. Ya Ruski is in, in Russian. And it's by a Russian pop artist called Shaman, S-H-A-M-A-N. I have a link in the, uh, the notes today for three different things that you can take a look at. One is the music video for the song, which if you like contemporary pop, it's it's pretty catchy. It's not my general style of music but i can definitely see why regardless of the content it is a very very much a hit song in russia uh i have a link to where you can 
read the lyrics translated to English, and the, the link I have to the video has English subtitles so that you can understand what's being said. And then I also have a link to a group of young people. It's being spread around as teenagers, but I look at these people and I think maybe maybe 20-somethings. I'm not sure. And I know that the video has maybe been a little overhyped by the pro-Russia side, but the, the video itself is genuine. And it is an assload of young people. And they are clearly enjoy singing this song. And again, this has nothing to do with Putin good, you know, or anything like that. Or Zelensky good, Putin bad, or Putin bad, Zelensky good. I think to understand this discussion, the first place you have to start off with is when it comes to people that are politicians or nations in a war, it is absolutely possible, absolutely possible that both sides are wrong. You can have a fight and both sides are wrong. If you see a fight break out between two gangbanging sects, which side do you back? All right, so uh, let's not even get in right now to whether it's right or wrong, who's right, who's wrong. Let's just understand what's going on and let's understand something about how you are manipulated. How you're manipulated. And so, using patriotism to create an appetite for war amongst a population who doesn't really have one at the moment is a story as old as war itself. Okay? But there's, there's two sides to it. I think one side is clearly understood. You gin up, we're the greatest country in the world, nobody can beat us, blah, 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 rah, 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 rah. What are you, a traitor, you're a commie pinko, whatever, right? So you belittle anybody that speaks against the thing that you want done, the violence you want done in your name, the war you want to fight or back. And at the same time, you praise everybody that does as a that gets on your side as a patriot. That's a very I think even when it's, even when people fall for it, they understand that that is a part of a mind manipulation propaganda. They just think, oh, but this time it's true, right? And that's exactly what they want you to think to get you to back violence and warfare somewhere around the world. Yeah. All right, but there's the other side, demeaning the fact that the other side's citizens are patriots that love their country. The average Russian is very proud to be a Russian. And they will defend their homeland. They absolutely will. And they will with a determination that we can see from history is impressive, to say the least. If you were, if you were a, a German uh, infantryman, and you were being told that you were about to be deployed to the front... You didn't want to go to the... You would much rather have faced the American forces than go into the Russian front. That's hard to believe. But it was a meat grinder like nothing else, and the Russian people didn't blink. This isn't praise. This is history. So I want you to listen to the words in this song. I'm not going to play it because it's in Russian, and especially without being in a live feed with a video, you wouldn't know what he was saying unless you speak Russian, which, which I do not. But it starts out, I'm Russian. I breathe in this air. The sun's looking at me from the sky. A free wind is blowing around me. It's the same as me. And I just want to love and breathe. And I don't want anything else. I'm, I, I'm who I am, and nobody can break me. I am Russian. I fight to the end. I am Russian. My father's blood flows through me. I'm Russian, and I'm lucky with this fact. I'm Russian to spite the whole world. The song is flying to the sky, and it calls me to follow it. And my heart burns inside me. It lights my way home. 
where I want to just love and breathe, and I don't want anything else. I am who I am, and nobody can break me. Because I am Russian, I fight to the end. And there's more to it, but I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. Sounds pretty patriotic, doesn't it? And this has been, an, since it came out, an incredibly popular song. Now, I am absolutely sure I'm going to get emails from people. They're going to tell me, tell me something that I'm going to say right now as though I didn't say it. And that is, I am absolutely sure that the Russian government has used this to the intent of propaganda and over-exaggerated over, uh, how popular it is, or played it in certain places, and maybe even the video of the young people dancing and all was somewhat staged. One of the research that I could do on it and what I could find out, it was at a quote-unquote corporate event. Not a government event, a corporate event. So it looks like some kind of big like corporate party, like a giant corporate party. But, party. but these, these people, like what's on their face is joy and pride in their country. Now again, Putin could be the son of Satan. It doesn't change what I just said. It has nothing to do, honestly, with what I just said. I, I'll put it a different way. There was a time when there was a war between two countries. Iraq under Saddam Hussein, in Iran, who at the time was under um, one of the Ayatollahs, I don't remember which, I think Khomeini. Who do you pick in that fight? Which side do you join in and help in that war? We did it, by the way. We backed Hussein, and they fought to a stalemate over eight years, and then uh, not so long after that we went in and uh, took out the the uh, Iraqis and replaced Hussein. First with Gulf War One, where we weakened him, and then Gulf War Two, where he was put to death. So we have a habit of backing wars, even when one side's the bad side. But at least at that point, when we were doing that, we were basically saying we're we're kind of backing a lesser of two evils thing. We, I remember people in the United States government in the '80s saying there's never been a war where both sides more deserve to lose. Yet we still picked a side. We still picked a side. It's interesting, isn't it? But now we're picking a side and we're going to just hold up our side as they're just absolute heroes. I would like you to know, when you say, I stand with Ukraine and Zelensky, what you're, what you're actually backing. So it just so happens that as I was preparing this show, uh, I noticed that a new uh, piece of information was out about what's going on in uh, Ukraine. So Zelensky has now banned Russian books and all books printed in the Russian language. All books printed in the Russian language are now banned in Ukraine. What else has Zelensky done? Well, they've outlawed opposition parties for the political process. And when I tell you what else has happened, you'll see why it doesn't really matter at this point. But he's also thrown some of the opposition candidates in jail for nothing other than it's wartime and we can't have this. They've also announced yesterday, he announced yesterday they're going to cancel the election in 2024 to keep him in, in office. They're canceling next year's elections as long as the war's still going on and or there's still martial law declared in a state of emergency, there won't be any elections. There's also supposed to be elections in Ukraine this fall for their Congress, basically. Guess what? not going to happen, called off the election. So uh, Ukraine has canceled elections, banned books, jailed opposition candidates, banned opposition parties. And if you actually took five seconds to do a little bit of research, you would find out the absolute appalling uh, 
things that Ukrainian children are taught from grade school about Russians basically being subhumans. What does this all sound like to you? Again, Putin bad. Okay, I'll concede that. I'm not going to be a defender of Vladimir Putin. Saying Putin bad doesn't make Zelensky good. For God's sakes, you're grown-ups. You're grown-ups. It is not 1985. You are not a teenager. And it's not Macho Man bad, Hogan good. Oh, wait, now Macho Man good, Hogan good, Rowdy Piper bad, right? Like, come on. Just because two people stand in opposition to each other doesn't mean one of them's good or even better. They could be equally bad. I think in this case, if one's worse, it's probably Zelensky. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a fan of either man. But I do know something about Russia. It is a very patriotic nation. Incredibly patriotic. And the problem that we have with our appetite for war being stoked by warmongers and war hawks, right? the war pigs of the world that profit from blood and death, is that they don't just rise up your side on the patriotism. They play down the patriotism of the other side. In nations that are far worse than Russia or Ukraine, people are still proud and will defend their homeland and do not believe for a minute they won't. You think if you were to invade China, you would be welcomed as a liberator by the average Chinaman? I'm not talking about the military itself. I'm talking about the average person walking around on the street. We weren't really welcomed as liberators in Iraq or Afghanistan. More on that in a minute. You think if we invaded North Korea, the average North Korean, go, oh, gee, the Americans are here to save us? Are you that daft? Maybe you are. You're going to say, Jack, are you supporting Kim Jong? You see, now you're being dumb again. I didn't say anything about Kim Jong, ding dong, anything. What I said was the average North Korean would kill you if he thought you were trying to invade his country. That's what I'm saying. And it's true. And one of the things you really need to understand about some of these very oppressive regimes is these people have never known anything else. They don't know anything else. And they've been educated that their way of life is the best since birth. And they have also, like in the case of North Korea, been told that the rest of the world is out to get them. And there's almost no one alive left in North Korea that remembers a time where it was any different. There's almost nobody left. It's been that long. And you don't know what it would be like to be born and raised in Russia or Colombia or Venezuela or Australia or Japan or Korea, North or South, because you weren't. And so it's very easy for you to be manipulated into, oh, those people really don't want what they have. I will tell you that right now, in the middle of a long, drawn-out conflict, Vladimir Putin is more popular with the Russian public as a whole than any president in the United States has been in most people's adult lives. Not all, but most. Probably the last guy that was as popular as Putin is right now in Russia, was Eisenhower. You thought I was going to say Reagan, didn't you? No, Reagan had lots of enemies. Reagan won in landslides, but if you look at the popular vote, the country was pretty close to evenly split the way that it's been forever. That's been forever. Don't 
be manipulated into picking a side in a fight that's not yours, where there probably isn't a good guy. If you watch the video, the short video, of just the young people singing in total joy, this is what you'll realize if you will let yourself. They are not that different than us. We have far more in common with the average Russian person than we do with the people making decisions to send our money and weapons to Ukraine. The people that actually make those decisions have nothing in common with you. The Russians that are listening to a song and are proud of their country have a lot in common with you. You could probably go to Russia somewhere out in the country a little bit. Believe it or not, there's some really cool places in Siberia, by the way, especially more southern regions of Siberia. And stay with a Russian family and be blown away at the hospitality and the beauty of the place and who those people really are. That has nothing to do with Putin. If Putin's as bad as you think he is, then it's completely in spite of Putin. That's actually admirable to me that a people are like that. Don't ever be led into conflict by being told that the people in the, another country are people that need you. People that want liberty take liberty. And you might be shocked that, especially in some places like I just mentioned, that the average Russian might actually have some freedoms you do not, and you certainly will have freedoms that they do not. The question always comes down to, when it comes to conflicts like this, do people have a right to self-determination? I, I would ask you that. Do you believe that people have a right to self-determination? If you say yes to that, and then you think the Donbass region should remain in Ukraine, you've just contradicted yourself. Because that's another fact. It has nothing to do with Putin or Zelensky or my opinion. The people of the Donbass region are mostly, and I mean heavily mostly, ethnically Russian. The Donbass region was always part of Russia. It became part of Ukraine because of the same type of reason that Crimea did. Ukraine is a very, as a country is a very new thing. I don't think most of you know how new it is. My family's Ukrainian. I happen to know a little bit about my own family history and the place that I'm from. It's not really relevant to what I'm saying, though, so I'm going to let it go. I don't want to beat a dead horse proverbially. Just, I encourage you, listen to the song, watch the people, and think not about Putin and Zelensky. Think about the people. And then let it burn to your brain. And every time you're told about where we need to drop a bomb again, ask yourself if it really makes sense. Shouldn't we at least ask the question, should we actually be killing people? Don't you think that that should not be something that can be decided because somebody came up with a pretty cool catchphrase and, and, then, and then led you into it? And I'll just end with this. Regardless, again, what you think of Zelensky and, and Putin, either or. The last nation to lecture another nation about an unjustified invasion of another nation is us. We are the weakest legs in the world on that subject. The United States has invaded nations that are separated from our continent by giant oceans that were no direct threat to our country multiple times. We just spent a combined almost 20 years in two shitholes, Iraq and Afghanistan, and we got nothing for it. Nothing. Russia has invaded historically Russian territory on their border. 
That's what happened. Putin's evil. Does it change what I just said? And as soon as you snap to that, you're being manipulated by the mind manipulators. If you completely examine this situation and you come away with the conclusion that Ukraine is right in this fight and we should back Ukraine, that's great. You have every right to that opinion. I have every right to mine, which is we should not we should back Russia. Not we should hold up. My view is we should get the hell out of the way and peace would come and it would save Ukrainian and Russian lives. A prolonged war benefits neither side. That's Lao Tzu. No nation has ever benefited from an extended war. No nation. Not the victor, not the loser. How serious is this right now? They're grabbing every single male of fighting age in Ukraine and forcing them into conscription in the military. They're giving them a two, three weeks of training and then sending them out to the front. Young male Ukrainians are leaving their country in mass, draining fathers, uncles, brothers, future male members of the family, both from a standpoint of leaving the country and dying. And they're going to end up where almost every male that's still there is, if not dead or physically injured, emotionally scarred beyond belief. Well, Zelensky just also announced he's investigating making cannabis medicine legal because people need it to escape from the, the trauma of war. I'm not making that up. Go check it out for yourself. But do you know how many Ukrainian soldiers died since this counteroffensive started? In three weeks, 13,000 casualties. No progress. 13,000 young Ukrainian men are gone. Oh, And do you know where the majority of Ukrainian men who are fleeing Ukraine instead of being made into cannon fodder are going? Are they getting on planes and flying to Canada like people that avoided the Vietnam draft here? Oh, no. Are they going to the U.K. or running to Germany or, I know, Poland? No. The number one place Ukrainians are fleeing their country to right now is Russia. Again, it's a fact. But you... If you turn the TV on, you won't hear anything that I just said. And that's why you should actually think, you know what? After 15 years of telling the truth, Jack's probably telling the truth right now. And when he says he's not picking a side in the fight, as far as a moral side, maybe he's telling the truth about that too. Maybe when you don't pick a side, then your analysis is actually as non-biased as possible. Now, if you want me to pick a side tactically, who's going to win? It's Russia. It was always going to be Russia. That's why this conflict should have been avoided in the first place. When it finally happened, and I had my doubts that it would, but once it finally happened, I said, well, Russia takes Donbass. That's the best you get out in this scenario here. And the last thing I will point out to you, because this is another thing the TV will not tell you, Russia has used a dramatic amount of restraint in this war. Putin is actually under pressure to increase the force. What Russia did is they pushed into Ukraine, they backed into the Donbass, except for some areas they did let the Ukrainians take back control of because they thought they weren't worth the fight, they weren't tactically significant. They set up, they have a three-layer system of defense. They're fully entrenched. The Ukrainians lost over 250 tanks in this offensive so far. Did the TV tell you that? You're being lied to again. But who I think will win doesn't change who's going to win. Who I think should win doesn't change who's going to win. My opinion on this has no impact, and that's something else that we need to become grounded on. 
the opinions that the average American has about what's going on in Ukraine do not affect what goes on in Ukraine. My opinion won't make Putin win. Your opinion won't make Zelensky win. It won't. It has nothing to do with it. All it does is keep us fighting with each other while the scum that are behind all of this continue their games. And in this case, poking a, a bear with a nuclear arsenal. This is stupid. This is not our fight, and we should not be involved. And you know who's laughing harder than anybody else in this? China. This is making China's goal of exceeding our economic power and global footprint in their new run-up so much easier. So much easier. We're, we're, we're just fools in this. I know you're patriotic. I know most of you are. I know a lot of people would think, well, Jack, you're not a patriot anymore because you're an anarchist and you don't believe in government. I still love my country. I love America, the place, not the state. I have a sense of belonging here. Like the average Russian was born in Russia, I was born here. I've made my family here. I've built my life here. And I will defend this place to my own death. At one time when I was a young man, and a more conventional form of patriot, I took an oath. As much as I disdain what my country has become from a standpoint of its government, I will not ever turn away from that oath. That I was... I've been alive longer since I took it than I was before I took it, and I will never turn away from it. I will never turn away from it. You're not a better patriot than me because you have a different opinion than I am. A true patriot would recognize that one of the things we should be patriotic about in this country is the right of all people to speak their minds. Another thing that I think is a sacred American ethic that the left hates is that human beings have a right to be left alone. Maybe we should apply that to our foreign policy. With that, hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, uh, thanks for tuning in. I'll catch you next week on Wednesday with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Bail you out just run you around. They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month. Show you a better way